the high priestly prayer of Christ this morning. I'm excited about this text once again, uh, laying the foundation of the glory of God. Last week, I'm, I'm um, looking forward to this text in a very much an expectant way that the Lord is going to use it uh, in a powerful way. And I pray that our hearts and our minds would be ready uh, to receive the word from the Spirit and that we would be changed as a result. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, uh, we know this morning that you have gathered your people together and that where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there in their midst. And so we, we claim that promise. We know that you are here with us. My heart is, is heavy this morning. I know there is so much in this text, Lord, that uh, our church needs that I need to hear and that I need to be uh, changed. So I pray that your spirit would do a work through the ministry of your word. We even look to Isaiah and claim the promise that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but it will always prosper to accomplish the thing that you sent it to do. So I pray even this morning that we would lay aside our um, prejudices of Scripture, our biases of Scripture, our maybe previously understood concepts of um, biblical unity and discipleship. And I pray that we would just lay all that aside and just in a fresh and a new way, let your spirit shine a light into our own heart, that it would reveal the hidden places, it would reveal the areas that we may be holding on to man-made religion, that it would be uh, the hammer that would break up the hardness of our heart. Father, I pray that you would forgive us as a church for being comfortable with counterfeit versions of unity and that we would um, renounce them and that we would pursue a fresh and anew, a, a biblical definition of oneness, of unity, that we would see Christ high and lifted up this morning, that he alone would get all the glory for what's said and done here this morning. And so I pray that you would guard us from distraction and do a work that I cannot do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This past Sunday, we again, attempted to introduce this chapter by establishing the clear theme of Christ's prayer. And if you will remember with me, that theme really revealed in unique and tangible ways the heart, the passion, and the purpose behind this high priestly prayer of Christ. That clear theme, no doubt for me, and I think as intended in Scripture, was the glory of God. We at length uh, looked at this phrase that we are all too familiar with in our Christian circles, the glory of God. You see, Jesus, even to the very end of his earthly ministry, in the, in the midst of being faced with incredible physical and spiritual circumstances, he was committed and absolutely concerned about pursuing to the end the glory of God. He would not fail 
And he was sure to not fail in that pursuit of making known the Father in and through his life and ministry. The glory of God was his greatest aim, his greatest pursuit, his greatest goal and ambition in his earthly ministry was the glory of the Father. He put this on full display, didn't he? Haven't we seen it through the Gospel of John and how he lived and how he loved and how he interacted with with others? He was always concerned about the glory of the Father, so much so that he was willing to ultimately lay down his life because he knew that only through that would the Father get maximum glory. And so he did even that, the giving of his life, the shedding of his blood, the, the physical shame that he endured on the cross, the physical torment, he went to the nth degree to ensure the glory of God in and through his life. Do we remember the first chapter of John once again, verse number nine, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people. What did they do? They did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is what it ultimately meant for God to get the most glory in and through the life of Jesus was for Jesus to call out a redeemed and chosen and saved people for his glory. I think of even Romans 5, this incredible paradigm of God taking on flesh and coming to his own creation, but his own creation rejecting him. Romans 5 tells us, starting in verse number six, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the glory of God that Christ pursued in reconciling a people to himself and redeeming that which has been broken by our sin. This is our advocate. This is the great high priest. This is Jesus Christ. For Christ, the glory of God, again, was no flippant cliche. It was no trite bumper sticker quote. It was a divine paradigm that shaped every encounter with the loss that he had, every reaction with the hostile crowd, and every perfectly timed miracle. It was all done in light of the glory of God. This is how Jesus lived his life for the glory of God. So with that said, Jesus calls in this text his disciples then, and certainly he calls us today to live in that same way, fully pursuing in a maximum way the glory of God in and through our lives, in our relationships, in our reactions, in our encounters with the lost, in our opportunities to be the hands and feet of Christ 
We're to be living in light of the glory of God. Friends, this should shape our entire ministry just like it shaped his entire ministry. It should shape our entire life just as it shaped his entire life. The glory of God is is everything. The sad reality of it is this, that very few, myself included, live our lives in this manner. Again, remember, what does it mean to live our lives in the glory of God? We noted in our application and implementation time last week that the glory of God is kind of an ambiguous term, isn't it? And we hear it often, we use it often. Uh, but what does it mean? So I promised Carolyn, I don't see her this morning, maybe she's in the nursery, but we'll get the recording to her. I promised Carolyn that we would, we would get a, a clear definition of the glory of God. So we use words like glory and glorious and the verb form to glorify. It's in our Christian lingo, our Christian nomenclature, but we have lost the simple understanding of these very important words. So what does it mean? It means this, that our understanding of these words matters as it will influence the weight of these terms and our application of them. If we don't understand really what the glory of God is, are we going to be concerned about living for that glory? No. And so understanding a biblical definition of what Christ was so consumed with in this text will help us live in a way that Christ did in this text. So our root or our base of this word glory, the noun form, means this. To represent a high renown, to honor that is won by notable achievements. Has Christ presented some notable achievements in the gospel of John thus far? Yeah, certainly he has. I mean, he's demonstrating credible power as not just a good teacher, not just a rabbi that is not taught like anybody else, but as part of the Godhead, God himself taking on flesh, working signs, miracles, and wonders. He has achieved much in his earthly ministry, and thus he is due glory. And even in the midst of putting the glory of the Father on full display through these signs, miracles, and wonders, he goes on in unique and very intimate and relational ways to pursue the glory of God in the mundane of life, in the woman at the well, in reaching out to those that are the cast down and trodden upon of our society, he runs to them. And it's in those moments of interaction that the glory of the Father is in full display because what is he picturing? He's picturing how the Father has divinely loved the Son, and as a result, how the Son is divinely loving His creation. And as a result, how we've been loved by this Christ, the Son of God. And as a result, the ministry that we've been given of reconciliation to extend that same love that's been offered to us that those for those that are in such desperate need of it in our world. So the glory of God, high renown, honor won by notable achievements. It can also depict a sense of magnificence or great beauty. We often describe something or someone as glorious, which is used to represent someone or something as strikingly beautiful or 
impressive. Cannot Christ be described that way in the gospel of John? Can he not be described as strikingly beautiful and impressive and magnificent? This is the glory of the Father that has been given to Christ. And that same glory that's been given from the Father to the Son, the Son offers to us to put on full display for this world to see. And we do that through real tangible ways that we're going to look at in this high priestly prayer of Christ even this morning. So friends, we can, can we not unabashedly proclaim that Christ truly is glorious? And as a result, he is worthy of our utmost attention to live our lives in the same manner that Christ did in John 17. So what does that mean to you? I, I'm going to read just a couple phrases that I uh, had in my sermon from last week because I want us, again, to use this as the springboard. I said this last week, think about it on a daily basis. How often does the glory of God enter into our minds? How often, if ever, does the glory of God arrest our attention? How often does the living in light of the glory of God cause us to change how we respond or react in a tense situation? How often does the glory of God cause us to choose love instead of hate? to choose self-control over a moment of lust, to choose unity over needless dissension, to choose to cover a wrong in love over being quickly and easily offended, to choose to lean into relationship over drawing away in isolation, to choose corporate aggrievement over my personal individual preferences, the glory of God. It mattered to Christ. And I would contend that it should matter to us as well. So on the basis of this theme of glory, Our desire this morning is to trace out five specific petitions that Christ prays to the Father and to consider the implications for not only the disciples then, but as we bridge from their day to ours, what are the current and modern implications of those same specific prayers, excuse me, for us today? There's not going to be anything super fancy. We're going to let the text be our outline here this morning. So the first petition that we see Christ make, we see in verse number 11 of John 17. Look there with me. Verse number 11 of John chapter number 17. Christ says this, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. First point this morning is that Christ prays for the perseverance of his disciples. Christ prays for the perseverance of his disciples. We see that that perseverance in this word keep in verse number 11. We see the English word keep comes from this Greek word tereo, which has the idea of keeping watch over, to guard or protect, to keep safe or cause a state condition or activity to continue. Right? What's that state condition or activity that he is praying to the Father to continue? Their safety. Now, Christ doesn't only just have in mind their physical safety. Of course, he has that in mind. He cares for them. Often in his earthly ministry, Christ, when 
potentially foreseeing physical harm, what did he do? He withdrew into the mountain. Remember when they were about to take hold of him and crown him? There was, he, what did he do? He withdrew away. He, he kind of fled the scene of the crime, so to speak. He, he was aware of physical harm. Remember back just a few chapters ago, he did not go up to the Passover at a certain time because they were looking to take hold of him. There was a, a warrant out for his arrest and it was not yet his hour. And so Christ certainly cares about the disciples' well-being, but in his sovereign providence and his knowledge, he knows what the end looks like for these disciples. Right To deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, to claim Christ as our Savior, then and even now, does not bode well for our physical well-being. We are welcoming persecution and we are looking forward to persecution when we decide to follow Christ. It is promised to us in Scripture. So Christ does not primarily have the physical well-being of his disciples in mind, but more importantly, he has their spiritual well-being in mind. What has Christ done in these first few verses leading up to chapter, uh, excuse me, verse number 11? Let's read them. Verse number one, Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, well, first of all, what words had he just spoken? Look at verse number 33 of chapter 16. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There it is. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So on the basis of that statement, Christ is going to lift his eyes to the heaven in the presence of his disciples and pray this prayer to the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Certainly Christ at this point of his earthly ministry would have the imminent circumstances in mind that would soon come the disciples way as they would be scattered as Christ went to the cross Certainly he would have the coming persecution in mind that would ultimately lead to the martyrdom of all the disciples. And certainly Christ is concerned for his disciples in this way. But more importantly, he's concerned about their eternal soul. 
Christ passionately proclaims in the garden, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. Christ cares for the physical trials, but he's more concerned about the spiritual. We see the context of verse number 11. He's giving out this incredible, beautiful explanation of what the gospel who Jesus is, what his mission was, what the Father gave him to do, how he's accomplished that, how these immediate disciples have heard the words of Christ and have received them and believed that Jesus is who he said he is, the Christ sent from the Father. And as a result, they are trustworthy. They are believers. They are disciples, followers of Christ. He cares about their soul. Look with me at verse number two once again. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse number six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Verse nine and 10, I am praying For them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So Christ here is concerned about the relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. This beautiful description of the gospel is is the foundation by which Christ will send out and commission his disciples to share that same message that they've been given with the world. So Jesus, in this prayer to the Father, can you not see him reminiscing about his relationship with these disciples. He's thinking back about all that he has taught them, the things that he's opened up to them, the things that he has uh, illumined their eyes to, the truths of Scripture, the truths of who Jesus is. They are his beloved disciples. They were chosen by the Father. They have been given truth by the Son and have recognized and responded to Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord. It's the purpose of John's gospel. And Christ is using their testimony to lay a foundation for all those who will believe that he talks about in John chapter number 17. So why does Jesus pray this for his disciples? What is, why does he pray for the perseverance of the disciples? Why does he pray that the Father would keep them? Well, reason number one, Jesus is leaving, right? We know that's the immediate context of this upper room discourse. That reality has been looming over the last few chapters. Christ is leaving. Jesus will no longer be physically with, with them to teach and instruct. Right? We see that in verse Number 12, right? Let's read it. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Christ had this, uh, this responsibility for these disciples. And while he was there on earth, he kept them. He protected them. He guarded them. He instructed them. But despite this separation that Christ continues to allude to, we see down in verse number 15, go there with me. Christ clarifies, although I'm leaving and although I did guard them and keep them and protect them, 
Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Christ wants them to remain. There is purpose. There is work to be done. There is further reach of the gospel to go forth through the ministry of the disciples. So he's saying, look, I'm going. I have a strong desire to be with them, but keep them here because there's work to be done. But he's in full awareness of spiritual warfare. Keep them from the evil one. Who alone can keep us from the reach of the evil one? Not only here on earth, but for eternity. Is it not Jesus? Is it not the work that he has done on the cross that he will secure that victory, that he will seal us with the spirit and that no man can pluck us out of his hand? Reason number two, that he prays for their perseverance. Their identity matches that of Jesus, meaning they are not of this world. Look with me at verse number 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And as such, what will the world do? Hate them, just as they hated Christ. That's a problem. That's a difficult circumstance for these disciples to navigate the hate that the world has towards Christ and as a result towards his followers. Reason number three, that Jesus prays for their perseverance. Jesus prays that they would experience the depth of relationship together as fellow disciples that the Father and the Son experience continually, past, present, and future. Right, let's go back to verse number 11. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So Christ is going to call not only his disciples, but all those who will believe. He's going to call them into a very specific definition of unity, right? We're going to park that topic for now, and we'll uh, look in depth in that here in just a few more verses. But that's uh, definitely a reason that Christ prays for their perseverance. He knows the importance, the role that unity is going to play in accomplishing this evangelistic enterprise of making Christ known to the far reaches of the world. So Jesus, we see here in this passage, in this point of praying to the Father to keep them, we see the care of Christ for his disciples and ultimately for us. He prays that the Father would keep them. In the face of persecution, the Father will keep them. In the face of incredible circumstances, the Father will keep them despite a monument, monumental task, namely the establishment of the church that will soon come in the book of Acts, the propagation of the gospel, the completion of the Great Commission. Through all of that, the Father will keep them. How? How does the Father Keep them, and, and why does the Father keep them? Well, John 16, Christ says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribu tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Although we face 
incredible circumstance, although we face insurmountable circumstances, although the trials and tribulations of this world are real and they're heavy and they're weighty and they're burdensome and they cause us great trouble, Christ has overcome all of that. Remember, out of Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 7 that we looked at last week, we do not have a high priest who has not been tempted like as we were. But he has endured all the temptation and has been victorious. This is Jesus, our great high priest. So not only does Christ pray for the perseverance of his disciples, but secondly, he prays for joyful disciples. He prays for joyful disciples. Look at me at verse number 13. Christ says this, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Christ is praying for something very unique. I don't know about you, but not only would I probably not have chosen to pray, unfortunately, like Christ did out of all the things that I could have done. I don't know that praying for joy in the midst of being physically separated from a savior that has invested in three years of an earthly ministry in my life that I've given up every four. I don't know that joy is like at the top of, of my list, but Christ prays for joy. Why? Because he knows the power of joyful disciples. He knows the power of joy in the life of a believer can be an incredible and winsome and magnetic resource that can be used for evangelistic pursuit. I don't know about you, but the church is kind of grumpy sometimes. I mean, we're just not always a very joyful people. Why, why is that? Why, why are we not a joyful people? I, I would contend it's this, because our priorities are not the priorities of John 17. As we're going to continue to, to roll through this, if we can align our lives with the prayer of Christ and seek to pursue the things that Christ pursued for us in this prayer, how we interact not only in our family, but the mindset of, of our own mind and how we interact with the world is going to be turned upside down. Why are we not joyful people? It's because we're not remembering and living in light of the glory of God. We're not remembering who Christ is and what he's provided for us. We're too worried about the latest political agenda. We're, we're, we're concerned about the latest uh, buzz event out there in the world that it's all coming to an end and woe is me, my rights are going to fall along the wayside and it's, we're, we're not focused on Christ's priorities. We're focused on anything but Christ's priorities. We've been distracted by so many things that we have dubbed Christian that don't fall in line with the gospel and the Bible and being a Christ follower. And so therefore, what is our countenance? It's poor. It's, it's grumpy. It's off-putting to the world. We don't have, we don't offer hope to the world. We offer condemnation. We don't offer relationship with Jesus. We offer judgment. 
And so friends, when we see Christ for who he is and we pursue Christ in the glory of the Father, we're going to be a joyful people. And guess what the world will see in us as well? A joyful people. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will what? Rejoice and be glad in it. These aren't suggestions. This is the reality and the testimony of a follower of Christ that truly believes Christ is who he said he is. That in the midst of incredible tribulation, incredible circumstances, we can be joyful. And so James 1 tells us, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trial. Why? Because it's in that that Christ is doing something. He's working in and through us to make us more like him. And so let's put a smile on our face. Let's offer a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Let's open up our home in hospitality. Let's show Jesus and be a joyful people because this is what Christ prayed for us. That they would have whose joy? Christ's joy. I, I can't even wrap around my head around what divine Trinitarian joy looks like. But I'm sure it's good. Right? I'm sure it's pretty incredible. I'm pretty sure it's mind-blowing. I'm pretty sure it's not what we're putting on display, right? So if we could even just get just a sliver of understanding what the joy of Christ looks like in relationship with the Father... As the Father and the Son, as we've looked at, don't forget about the Spirit just a couple chapters back. They're all there, the Trinity, the divine relationship with the Godhead and an intimate fellowship and relationship, joyfully enjoying each other, this world, their creation. The glory of the Father is on Christ's prayer is that we experience his joy and that it be fulfilled, that it be completed that it be realized in and through the life of these disciples. He's called his disciples to be joyful. These disciples are struggling with joy right now. The events that will soon come will seemingly overshadow the reality of the fullness of Christ and his joy. They will weaken in their resolve, but ultimately Christ, we know out of Luke chapter number 22, 31 and 32, Christ will pray for them. And when Peter returns, he'll be able to strengthen his brethren. Christ sustains the faith of these disciples in and through these incredible circumstances that they're about to face. Do we remember Andy walking us through John chapter number 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, Christ said. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This theme of joy carries on right here through John chapter number 17. Christ is anchoring on his admonition to him. Even back in chapter 14, let not your hearts be what? Troubles. Don't focus on the separation. Don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on me. Focus on my mission. Focus on my relationship with you. I've, been, I've given you the helper. He's going to bring everything to your remembrance. He's going to equip you. He's going to counsel you. He's going to comfort you. Remember, John 10, 10, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly. This is, gee, he wants his people to be joyful. 
Thirdly, Christ prays for the sanctification of his disciples. Christ prays for the sanctification of his disciples. Look at me at verse number 17. Verse number 17, Christ prays this. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So what does Christ have in mind here when he prays that the Father would sanctify them? If you've been in church any amount of time, you might be familiar with some type of uh, definition of sanctify, right? We know the root of this word is the same as holy. It most commonly carries this idea of being what? Set apart or to make holy. One commentator describes this process in stating the word sanctify certainly has moral overtones, but it also includes the idea that the holy God makes his people like himself in both purpose and mission, end quote. We see this unfold in verse number 19. Look with me there, verse 19. And for their sake, Christ says, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We know Christ is the God-man, fully God, fully man. So certainly Christ doesn't consecrate or sanctify himself to be more holy. He's as holy as he's ever going to be. Why? Because he's God, right? But rather, Christ gives us an example in verse number 19, an example of committing himself to what the Father's will. He's Defining again, once again, for the disciples, he's consecrating, he's setting himself apart to complete the work of the Father for his glory. So friends, I believe this is where we as a church have gone horribly awry in understanding of sanctification. I want to park here for just a few minutes, all right? So so hang with me, and I, I pray this will be helpful. And if you're like me, challenging my understanding of holiness and the purpose of it. We take this meaning of being set apart so literally that we violate the very prayer of Christ in John 17. What do I mean by that? I don't see in John 17, Christ outlined six degrees of separation or an ungodly fear of the world that we're supposed to, for some reason, hide from. That the world is going to get us. We don't see that from Christ here. I just hid behind the pulpit if you didn't get that. I don't know, it just came to me. Right? That's, that's not what we see Christ doing. He, he's not fearful of the world. He's aware of spiritual forces. He's aware of the evil one here in John 17. But what he is aware of is who he is. And what he's about to accomplish because he just said... In chapter 16, I've overcome the world. Be aware of the world. Be aware of your flesh and its weaknesses, but don't fear the world. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This is how, this is our disposition as believers, as followers of Christ to interact and be in the world in that manner. We're sojourners. We're outcast. All right, what's the song? This world's not my home. 
I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I won't sing it for you. We'll bury you that. But this is a reality, right? Christ understood that. In this text, we're not of this world. But there's purpose and there's beauty in a unified oneness, togetherness, body of Christ being in the world. And so therefore, we lean into that. We pursue that. We embrace our identity as called out ones, set apart ones to be what in the world. I see Christ on mission here, embracing the will of the Father to be sent into the world for the benefit of the world. Therefore, friends, we are sanctified and set apart by Christ for his purposes. Therefore, we too will be on mission as Christ was in the world and for the benefit of the world. Again, reminder, Christ is not praying that the Father would remove us, but on the contrary, he's praying intentionally, very specifically, that God would keep us in the world, to be sanctified in the world, to be on mission in the world. He has called us to be separated, yes, from the world, to live in a manner that's different. But what he has not called us to do is to live for some reality of a Christian utopia, to live in, in, in some uh, force field of a bubble that is impenetrable by the world. That's not what he's called us to do. He's called us to be a light set on a hill and shine. And, to, and let the glory of, of Christ be known. This is what he's called us to do. <laughs> I, I, right here, it's just I'm mulling this over my own mind. He's not called me to waste away and to live out my Christian days in my glass palace of pious Christianity pointing my finger of shame down to the world as we look at the moral decline of society. This is, this is not our purpose. This is, this is not the purpose of us as believers. We've been given something greater and something more tangible and something more helpful for the world than just a shaken head of disgust. This is, this is not the Christ that, that I follow. This is not the Christ that we see in, in John 17. He's called us to be sanctified, to be set apart, yes, to pursue personal holiness, but for a purpose, to be on mission, to live as he lived and to love as he loved, to be in the world. That's beautiful. I, I love it because we, we have purpose. The disciples then extended to us as those who will believe and generations to come as our children and grandchildren that sit right here in this room too, by God's grace, will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They've too been given the same mission to show forth in a joyful manner, in a persevering manner, that they are set apart and on mission for Christ. Let us be clear in this text, we also see the means by which we are sanctified. What is it? Right here in our text, we see sanctify them what? In the truth. Your word is truth. So the means by which we are sanctified is the word. It is the word 
It is in the word, excuse me, that we understand the character and person of Jesus Christ. It's in the word of God that we find out how to live. We find the purposes of Christ revealed, everything that he has taught. He has instructed them in the word to complete a very real task that will further be explained as we continue our journey through the gospel of John. So let us be clear, Jesus is placing the highest premium on the word, on truth. The role of the word and our sanctification is unmistakable in this passage. We've learned about the ministry of the spirit connected with the importance of this word of truth, the spirit of truth, John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Question is, is the word of Christ in you? How can the spirit of God bring all things to your remembrance in all that I have said to you if the word of truth is not in you? If we're not being progressively day by day being set apart through the truth, the word. How can we as fellow disciples of Christ complete the great commission of Matthew 28, 19 and 20 if the truth, the word of truth is not in us? What is the great commission? It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, we can't complete the great commission if the word is not working in and through our life to change us to become more like Jesus. If we don't know what Jesus commanded us, we certainly can't help somebody else understand and know what Jesus has commanded them. So much is at stake with understanding the role of the word in our life. It is not a optional or negotiable part of our Christian life. It is something that should grip our attention, that we should love and pursue and to know the word of God. Psalm 119 how shall a young man keep his way pure by taking heed thereto according to thy what word? The word of God has incredible power to guard our heart and mind, to keep us set apart for Christ, to keep us on mission and on purpose with Jesus. So reason number one that Jesus prays for our sanctification is this, so that others would believe also. Jesus prays for our sanctification so that others may believe. Also, look at me at verse number 20. Christ says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's the there? There. <laughs> is it not the disciples? You see, you see, so Christ is saying that others are going to believe through the disciples' word. Them understanding and knowing and living the word allows them to be sanctified by the truth. And it's that truth changes them. They have the power and the boldness and the spirit-ledness to go forward and share Jesus and to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And so others will believe also. It will be through the providential choosing of the Lord to use mankind and the preaching of the gospel 
to accomplish this work. That's humbling, isn't it? Out of all the things that Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit could choose to spread Jesus and Him crucified, they chose to use imperfect vessels that ultimately rejected Christ when He came to this earth to accomplish that work. Wow, that's humbling, isn't it? And it's in that reality that I understand my role. God's word tells us some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. Paul fully understood this reality in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter one, verses 17 through 21. Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The folly of the preaching of the cross of Christ and Him crucified is what God the Father has chosen to complete his work of making Christ known in this world. Friends, we have an incredible role and part to play in that mission. It's not just for the elders, the pastors. It's not just for the deacons and leaders of our churches. It is the role and responsibility of every disciple follower of Christ that claims Jesus as a Lord and personal Savior that has recognized and responded to him as Savior and Lord we are to understand that the same testimony that the disciples had in verse number 20, that through their word, others also will believe. It is extended through us, that through our word of preaching Christ and the folly of the cross, that others too will believe. Friends, are we honed in on that reality? Am I embracing that role and responsibility? Am I following the heart and the mind and the purpose of Christ as he prays this back to the Father? Am I seeing that come to full fruition in my life today? Reason number two that Christ prays for their sanctification is so that it would aid in their understanding and practice of biblical unity. Jesus prays for their sanctification so that it would aid in their understanding and practice of biblical unity. Look with me in verse number 21, that they may all be what? One, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our sanctification allows us, by God's grace, as we are being set apart, understanding and knowing who Christ is more and more every single day, taking on His mind, and understanding and living as He lived and loving as He loved. It allows us, as we're becoming more like Christ, to relate with others better who also are becoming more like Christ. Friends, if you have a relationship issue in your life, 
with fellowship within the body of Christ, I would encourage you to look at how, by God's grace, you are leaning into this responsibility of knowing and understanding and living the Word of God. Because as I do that, I become more like Christ. As I become more like Christ, I pursue relationship. I seek it out. I cherish it. I love it. I run hard after it. But when I'm living for myself, when I'm caught in sin, when I choose myself over Christ, I fall away in isolation every single time. So my understanding of sanctification absolutely will influence my ability to practice biblical unity better. Not only does Christ, wow, pray for perseverance, joy, and sanctification for his disciples, but fourthly, he, he prays for the unity of his disciples. And we're going to dive into this topic of unity uh, now. Read verses 20 and 21 right there. Let's read verse 23. Christ goes on to say, and I in them and you in me, that they may be what perfectly one. For what purpose? So that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus mentions multiple times in this passage here about this topic of unity of togetherness, of oneness. His desire is that the church locally first be concerned about unity, but even beyond that universally, we should be what? One. Not two, not three, not this denomination, that denomination. He has called us to be one. Now we know in uh, our establishment and stewardship of the church in our imperfect way as sinful human beings, we have gotten in the way of this prayer over the history of the church. Uh, I think we could all give a nod of agreement to that, right? As we look at the state of the church and how divided in, in many ways it is. But Christ has a goal in mind here. And the goal that Christ has will always be accomplished. This isn't just a hope. This isn't just something that Christ thinks would be a good thing to say right now in the presence of his disciples. He literally is praying that the church that's going to be established through the ministry of these disciples, that they be one, not just then, but for all those who will be, and spanning the history of mankind, that the church, the body of Christ, his bride, that they be one. Wow. We see that in verse 20. Christ says, I do not ask for these only, the immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe. That's, that's you, that's me, and that's future generation of Christ's followers. He goes on to verse 21, that they may all be one. One about what? Well, in our immediate context and the broader context of the Gospel of John and the entire storyline of Scripture, which as a reminder, either looks forward to or looks back to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That is what Christ is praying to the Father that we be one in. Our understanding, our recognizing, and our responding in our practice of the gospel. 
that we be one in that. That's what he outlined in the first few verses of this prayer. What eternal life and salvation in Christ through the Father is. This lines up with the stated purpose of John's gospel, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, the question is this, are we at Liberty Hills Bible Church, are we one in that? I sure hope so. We have affirmed and confirmed that the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Are you one in that with us as you covenant together with this body? I think of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and all in all. Friends, at Liberty Hills Bible Church, are we one in this way? I think of Philippians 1, 27, 28, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Friends at Liberty Hills Bible Church, as we lean into covenant membership, are we interacting in that way, are we one in that way? I think of 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. Paul once again says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The conclusion is no. <laughs> Friends, at Liberty Hills Bible Church, are we living and interacting? Are we covenanting together in that type of unity? Let it never be said of Liberty Hills Bible Church that there's quarrels among us. Christ calls us to agreement. He calls us to unity, to be of one mind, of one body. I think of Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and get this, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. There's that joy. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's that sanctify them with the truth, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
friends, does this describe how we are interacting with one another within the context of the body of Christ? Are we covenanting together in this way? Or are we settling for a counterfeit version of biblical unity? Do you see the unique nature of what Christ prays for and what he doesn't pray for in his description of unity? Let's look at that. Christ prays for what? Unity. Like the Bible kind of unity. Just to clarify, this is what Christ is praying for, right? Like gospel-centered kind of unity. It's that type of unity that will cause us to run to the lost in love instead of hiding from them. Shielding our kids, again, in this little force field of perfection. You see, this type of unity is grounded in Christ's righteousness. Conformity is grounded in self-righteousness. Let me say that one more time. The type of unity that we see here in John 17, it is grounded in Christ's righteousness, his person, his work, his identity as God, his ministry, his signs, his miracles and wonder. It all gives testimony to this reality of who Christ is and this unity, this oneness that Christ has called us to. It is grounded and rooted in Christ, his righteousness. The counterfeit that many times we settle for is conformity. We have a list of do's. We have a list of don'ts. We fall in line. We get stumped, stumped in the mold. We conform to a set of rules and a, a set of rules of do's and don'ts. We say the right things. All that is grounded in self-righteousness, but conformity never equals unity. You see, the beauty of what I see unfold through the whole of the New Testament is that unity is what we are to pursue despite the uniquenesses of each member within the context of the body of Christ. You see, there can be differences within certain applications of the gospel. There can be differences with how we live out the gospel's work in our life. We see that in Corinthians. We see that in Romans. We see that in Ephesians. We see that all through the whole New Testament. But in the midst of those differences, weaker, stronger brothers, stumbling blocks or not, what has God called us to be unified and one and together? He's called us to unity in the midst of diversity. When my definition of holiness is more important than what Christ has said and stated as true biblical holiness is, we have a problem. Right? When my definition of holiness becomes more important than what Christ said it was, we have a problem. We have a priority that's out of check and we need to get back to scripture and let the word of truth sanctify us. We need to get back into community, the body of Christ and let others speak truth into that. Secondly, also note the quality or standard by which Jesus calls us to be unified. Jesus uses the very relationship of the father and the son in essence, this Trinitarian view to describe the height, the breadth, the depth of unity, the oneness that we are to call to experience with each other. The question is, where does this type of unity flow from? Look at the verse number 22. It says this. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. This type of oneness can only be produced by the glory of the Father that was given to the Son, that was put on display on this earth, that is received by the disciples. We can only experience this type of oneness here on earth as we, as the, those who will believe, as individuals and corporately as the body of Christ, are living for this same glory of God. See, friends, if we don't live our lives for the glory of God, we're not going to live our lives in reality, this type of unity and oneness. So why does Christ call us to this type of unity? The purpose of our unity is evangelistic. This may not be a track. It's not a program. It's certainly not the Romans road. There's nothing wrong with any of those things at all. But how often do we, do we view our responsibility to pursue unity in light of the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ and our responsibility to share it with a world that is lost. Jesus' desire is that the world would see his people, the body of Christ, the church, his set-apart bride, that he would see them united and the truth of the gospel as that is put on full display through relationships both in the church and how we interact with those outside the church, that this type of unity the world would observe and that they would see and they would come to one conclusion that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what's at stake when we pursue unity or the lack thereof. What conclusion is our community drawing about who Christ is by how we are living and are acting inside and outside of this church? So Jesus prays for perseverance, joy, sanctification, unity. And finally, Jesus prays for the bodily presence of his disciples with him. And he alluded to this at verse number 24 in our song service this morning. Let's read it quickly. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The basis of this final petition of Jesus back to the Father is his love for his disciples. Once again, the quality of this love is rooted in the love and relationship that the Father and the Son share together. Right? Think, think about that, right? Where the Father is, Christ will be. And in turn, where Christ is, we will be because he loved us this much that he provided for us a way to know him for all of eternity. I think of Galatians 2.20 in closing. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Friends, I'm once again afraid that far too often we lose sight of these realities, the heart beat of Christ in this prayer to the Father. I pray that our church 
would be known by these key petitions that Christ holds so dear in his last moments on the earth that he would take the time to pray them to the Father in the presence of his disciples. And he did that. He did that for the purpose of his disciples, knowing and understanding what it looks like to live their lives for the maximum glory of God in their individual lives and broader in the corporate body of Christ as it in its infancy will come to fruition. But friends, I'm also afraid that far too often we are more concerned not about the mind and the heart and the purposes of Christ, but we get more enamored with our hobby horses as I referenced last week, our isms, our conveniences. And as a result, the world looks on and says that Jesus that you follow is a joke. He's not real. He is not the Christ, the Son of God. They come to that conclusion, yes, because the sinfulness of their heart and choosing their way over God's, but they also come to that conclusion mainly or because of or in part of our inability to put on full display the glory of Christ and how we interact in relationship with each other. That's what Christ says here. That's the conclusion that the world will draw every single time unless we as individuals in the gathered church get serious about the glory of God. For when we do, they will look on and observe something supernatural, something not of this world, a miracle of sorts, a group of humble, committed, loving, united people serving each other sacrificially all for the glory of God. When they see that, they can only say Jesus is no joke. He is who he said he is. He is the Christ, the son of God. Friends, this is John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ. I pray that the Lord and the Spirit would use these words to change us, to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would do a work. Plant the seeds here. Allow the fruit to bear, that it would remain. Let us not settle individually or as a church for anything other than the type of unity that you outlined here in John 17. Father, I pray that you would use my broken words and my humble attempt to uh, explain your heart and your passion. What's at stake here? The weight that you place on your relationship with your followers. You've called us, you set us apart for a purpose. I pray that we would do it in Jesus name. Amen.